Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people, with news, views and expert interviews. Hello, I'm Steve Randall and welcome to a special episode of Constructive Voices. Just days after the COP27 climate change conference came to an end in Egypt, we've convened a panel of experts to look at how it will impact the built environment sector. What were their highlights of COP27, their disappointments, and how do they see what was agreed being taken forward by the construction industry over the next year? Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. So welcome to our five panellists. I'll come to each of you in turn and then we'll have a roundtable discussion towards the end as well. So, Matthew, you're first. I'm Matthew Black. I'm the Programme Coordinator for World Green Building Council's Global Advancing Net Zero Programme. Brilliant. Well, welcome to the podcast. Now, a number of the team from the uh, World Green Building Council were in Egypt taking on everything that was happening there during COP27. What was the feeling of the team there and how do you feel about what happened in general? Obviously, a, a lot of different opinions coming out at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, to start off with, I think it's very clear that it's been a bit of a mixed result. There are obviously some clear disappointment and, and that shouldn't be dismissed. Uh, and, and it really it just shows that we need to keep the pressure up for ever increasing action on climate. But that's not to say that there aren't some positives to take away. Um, I think the main headline is the agreement to develop a global fund for loss and damage, providing financial assistance to poorer nations who are usually the most affected by the climate crisis uh, at this current time. Um, and just for a bit of context, you know, loss and damage refers to um, those severe impacts of extreme weather on physical and social infrastructure in these countries. And really, it's it's related to the financial assistance that's needed to combat this moving forwards. Now, we don't really know, um, probably until COP28 next year, on the on the details of how this fund will work, what the level of funding it will receive, um, etc. So there's still work to be done, but the fact that this now exists at least recognises uh, the necessity of, of, of such a fund moving forward. Post the, the negotiations that, that concluded over the weekend, we're, we're hearing a lot of concern around the action on reducing emissions, on, on, on tackling carbon emissions, and therefore the, the goal of limiting heating to, to 1.5 degrees. Um, as we look towards COP28 and, and the global stock take that will happen next year, we want to see mitigation and adaptation of potential new buildings to be much more strongly considered. But in terms of what we saw at COP27, I think we can be much clearer and positive in terms of our assessment related to the built environment. Last year at COP26, we saw World GBC and the Building to COP coalition organizations, alongside a significant group of, of businesses and non-party actors continue to place buildings and the built environment front and centre as a critical climate solution. And this year, we built on the successes of learnings of last year's COP and the cities, regions and built environment day that went with it. So despite not having a dedicated built environment day this year, there were still over 200 events on every thematic day of this conference focused uh, on the positioning of the built environment as a critical sector needed to achieve the transition to a resilient uh, and net zero emission future with, with World GBC involved in, in over 20% of those. And, and I think speaking more broadly, you know, through all of these events and, and the content that, that was positioned there, both we as World GBC and, and, and like I said, the Building to COP Coalition members and everyone involved has sent a clear signal to industry and policymakers that the sector is ready to deliver on 1.5 degree aligned goals uh, alongside our network of 77 green building councils who are really uh, the sector solution providers on the ground. So aside from the government negotiations where perhaps we haven't seen as much progress as we would have liked to have seen, Arguably, the real COP is where we're seeing non-state actors networking, collaborating, creating partnerships on the sidelines to ensure that what has been labelled an implementation COP really follows through on accelerating that action. Yeah, there certainly seems to be, from everything we've done and all the people we've talked to around this, 
you know, there is an impetus in the industry, in the construction industry, to really move forward and acknowledging that the construction industry has such an important part to play. And everybody wants to do that. Uh, and so perhaps it's a little frustrating when, as you say, you know, some of the world leaders, for example, have not gone far enough. Yeah, it's definitely frustrating. But what we have to bear in mind, as you just said that as an industry, is that we already have the solutions to tackle uh, carbon emissions in relation to, to the built environment. We don't need you know, too many new fancy toys or, 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 or innovations or technologies. We have everything that we need today to, uh, to achieve 1.5. And so I think it's really clear that the industry now Whilst it's important that we continue to encourage that that sort of national and, and, and government uh, level action in terms of uh, more ambitious regulation and policies, we can't wait. There's not enough time to wait for them to take that decision now. And so what we are seeing is, as I said, on the sidelines, non-party actions, private businesses stepping up, uh, setting more ambitious uh, climate targets and goals that go far beyond national codes or, or, or policies in that area, and really taking that action, sending the necessary demand signals into the more mainstream industry uh, that the time to act is now and that they need everyone to come along with them so that they can achieve that transformation. Now, we did an event with your colleague uh, Victoria Burrows last year. We talked about the roadmap post-COP26. Obviously, the war in Ukraine and various other things have happened since. Something we couldn't have predicted, as with the previous thing that we couldn't have predicted with, with COVID. I mean, it's it's been a number of unpredictable events, one after another so far. But how do you and the rest of the team envisage the roadmap post-COP27 for the built environment, such that there may be further unprecedented and unpredictable events? Well, you're absolutely right, Steve. You know, none of us have a crystal ball. And, and so, you know, anything could happen within the next 12, 18, 24 months. I think the important thing is that we continue to shine a light on the impact, but also crucially, the opportunity that the built environment uh, presents in relation to the climate crisis. COP27 has shown that we have the solutions to create a, a better built environment and that we can no longer afford to continue creating inefficient, unhealthy, high-emitting buildings uh, in transforming the sector. And so really what we're looking for in terms of a roadmap, World GBC and, and the Building to COP coalition members, our green building councils and their members across the globe are going to continue with the job at hand. We're going to continue to work together and collaborate to accelerate the transition to a more sustainable and resilient built environment through our projects and work streams. We're going to continue to encourage stronger regulations and policies from governments at all level, whether that's local, city, regional, all the way through to national governments, and also encourage more ambitious action from the private sector. You know, we want to encourage them to set ambitious targets through campaigns such as uh, the Race to Zero um, or indeed World GBC's own Net Zero Carbon Buildings Commitment. And really, like I said, there's no time like the present. We have the solutions and we've just got to keep working to do that. And I think that's the next 12 months, but it's also the next few years. And as we look ahead to COP28, we want to continue to reinforce that message, to prioritize the built environment as an urgent and critical climate solution, and really to work towards another built environment day at COP28 that will keep the pressure on decision makers, continue to rally the sector and bring uh, uh, this diverse and often dissipate sector together to collaborate and put those solutions into action. Let, let's talk through some of the specific things in terms of positive outcomes for the built environment and some of the announcements that we saw at COP27? Um, to highlight a few, we've had significant work done by the high-level champions group. Now, many of, uh, many of your listeners will be aware of them as the team behind the Race to Zero and the Race to Resilience, its sister campaign from, from the UN. Uh, and what they released last year at COP26 was the Breakthrough Agenda. And this year, they've been building on that and setting out some sector-specific uh, targets and outcomes. So now what we have is the Built Environment Breakthrough Outcome. And this is uh, a series of near-term waypoint actions needed across all levers for systems change from supply to demand all the way through to 
policy implementation. But the headline outcome target for the built environment is that by 2030, 100% of projects completed in 2030 or after are net zero carbon in operation. But crucially, they should also have um, at a minimum a 40% reduction in embodied carbon as well. And a lot of this has been informed by uh, World GBC's whole life carbon vision targets and the work of the other coalition members. So it's really important now that we have a, a high level sector wide uh, target and crucially a, a near term one for 2030 to really drive um, that accelerated action. We also saw from the Global Alliance of Buildings and Construction the announcement of uh, further development of their buildings breakthrough. Um, so they announced that, that France and the Kingdom of Morocco have reconfirmed their leadership, calling for a buildings breakthrough target for near zero emissions and resilient buildings are the new normal by 2030. And this would be a national level target with support um, from up to 15 other countries. So this means we've got a real strong foundation and a framework on which to build for the next 12 months up to COP28 so that hopefully at that COP we can have this podcast again uh, and I'll be able to, or one of my colleagues will be able to say that we've achieved a significant result in terms of additional countries uh, committed to that national level target and action on buildings by 2030. Uh, and finally, just a quick run through of some other announcements that I really think will will hopefully uh, engender further action. Um, we had the launch of the climate change resilience in the built environment um, report from World GBC, the high level champions team and C40. Uh, and this uh, collates effective and practical steps that can be taken uh, at a building, community and city scale in order to adapt and build resilience to the changing climate. And these are uh, a group of principles uh, uh, intended to help uh, built the built environment sector manage the ongoing adaptation and mitigation uh, in, in relation to the climate crisis. Uh, and then the last point I want to touch on is really crucial, um, particularly because of, of where this COP was held. So the first COP in, in Africa, in, in Egypt, um, that has really shined a light on, on the continent uh, and all of the different countries um, within there in terms of their action and, and their uh, experience of the effects of the climate crisis. And so at this Africa COP, World GBC released the Africa Manifesto, developed in collaboration with 15 national green building councils based in Africa uh, from across the continent and from support um, from partners, including, again, the Building to COP Coalition, DAR Group and Majid Alpha Time. And this report, um, this manifesto sets out the actions needed from policymakers and businesses across the continent to deliver on the Africa we want and crucially, the Africa Union's Agenda 2030. Uh, and these policy and commitments will, will be crucial in terms of uh, accelerating that action. And in order to uh, keep up the progress and the pressure um, uh, and the implementation uh, of the ideas within this manifesto, um, those organizations involved uh, have also set up the African Alliance for Sustainable City and Built Environment. Uh, and this alliance will serve as a regional platform to enable collaboration and knowledge sharing for the built environment across the continent, mobilizing a workforce of, of often micro to, to small and medium enterprises uh, in terms of um, applying the, the learnings of the sector in Africa so that, so that they can deliver uh, sustainable, resilient and healthy built environments moving forwards. Uh, and I won't go into detail because it's already been mentioned, but really just to highlight again, another announcement of the roof over our heads campaign. Uh, I think this is a, a, a really vital announcement because this campaign um, seeks to address the lack of access to safe and decent houses for the most vulnerable communities uh, globally with the aim of improving the lives of 2 billion climate vulnerable people living in informal settlements by 2050. And I think this campaign is particularly important because it shows that this is not just about skyscrapers. Uh, it's not just about fancy new offices uh, in the global north. It's about every building across the globe. And it shows that for the first time, we are empowering the people on the front line uh, of the climate disaster to have a voice 
uh, hopefully rather than speaking on behalf of them. So I think that's just a, a smattering of the, of the announcements and, and some of the actions that, that were taken, um, at COP27. And as I've sort of mentioned before, I think the action is ongoing in terms of the, the commitments that are out there. We've heard of the race to zero. Um, we have multiple um, commitments and initiatives that feed into the race to zero, whether that be uh, science-based targets, Amazon's the climate pledge, uh, the SME climate hub. Um, but we also have really sector specific um, initiatives that are crucial in terms of engendering that action. So uh, C40's uh, clean construction program that includes the clean construction accelerator. Um, they announced that the cities of London and Milan would be joining that accelerator at COP27. Uh, we also have um, the climate groups uh, EP100 initiative, as well as the um, RE100 initiative. We also have climate groups Concrete Zero and Steel Zero, which are encouraging material-specific action from the leaders within the industry. Uh, and finally, I, I will have to mention World GBC's uh, Net Zero Carbon Buildings Commitment, which is also encouraging uh, accelerated action on both operational and embodied carbon uh, as part of a whole life approach by 2030. So as I've sort of said, that's a bit of a, a quick run through there, but it, there are positives and, and we are definitely serious seeing action. Fantastic. Matthew, stay with us. We'll come back to you towards the end for uh, more comment. But uh, Sumele, let me bring you in uh, now. Just give us a very quick introduction, please. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Sumele Adelano. I am an associate RIBA, trained as an architect, but now work on the technology side, creating solutions for uh, the building environment. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, what's your overall opinion of the outcomes at COP27 for the built environment? Mixed feelings, it feels like. Um, on the positive, you could see that some countries and stakeholders are pushing for a holding of the line of the 1.5 degrees. And it doesn't seem like it's held as well as it should. We're already hitting 1.1 degree increase. That's dangerous. We haven't even got close to 2030 yet. But we can't keep shifting the goalpost. Uh, it just defeats the purpose. So, so that's a negative. Um, but on the positive side of things, you can start to see, you know, world powers taking responsibility and tying an economic weight to the impact of our previous actions in the past decades. Um, so the historic loss and damage deal is a huge deal. Of course it is, because poorer nations will start to get the support that they need to mitigate against the, the existing uh, impact of climate change. Typically, you just see that when there's no economic accountability, it just means that there's less concern. So uh, countries are putting their money where their mouth is. That's great to see. There is an estimate from a report by the UK and Egypt that estimates that by 2030, countries will need 1.75 trillion pounds a year um, simply to cut their gas emissions and to help with the effects of climate breakdown. So this is crucial. Um, like Matthew said, we don't yet know exactly how much has been fully committed. So we'll be watching to see if countries do deliver on, on what they've promised at this point. And then finally, I would say the last thing I'd say is uh, we just need more ambitious goals. You know, they've already agreed a face down of the use of coal, but we haven't quite seen that happen. Um, we were hoping that they would include oil and gas in in the types of um, uh, energy sources that would start to be phased down as well. But I don't quite think that that has shown up in the final uh, closing report. So there's more there's more to be desired. But I, I think the fact that the conversation is consistent. It's on a yearly basis, keeps keeps people on their toes and make sure that everyone is at least being held accountable uh, in one event on a yearly basis. And now often after these situations where you have a lot of people talking a lot of sense in one place at one time and the headlines are there and, you know, good and bad, those headlines are put out there. But actually, the, the real bit is how things have worked since. And if we look back to COP26, obviously a lot of things were discussed there, a lot of things were agreed there. But how do you feel we've done from a built environment point of view in realising the outcomes of Glasgow last year? Uh Good question. I think as as Matthew has alluded to, we didn't, you know, foresee the pandemic in the same way we didn't foresee the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, and and so we faced lots and lots of unprecedented challenges in the past three years, in fact. Um, and in the aftermath of the pandemic, you've seen cities returning to normal, which has meant that 
there's been a rebound in energy use and emissions. We've hit an all-time high at this point. And the, the RIVA summarized it this way, that in 2021, the sector accounted for 37% of energy and process-related carbon dioxide emissions and 34% of energy demand globally. Um, this is all a hold, all, an all-time high. And so we're exceeding 2020 levels by about 5% and pre-pandemic levels by 2%. So it, it is worrisome. We're not quite moving in the right direction, but there are options for us to start to maybe take the negatives in terms of the, the war in Ukraine. That has had a ripple effect on um, the, the concern with energy supply and the, you know, the destruction of infrastructure and being more resilient. Um, but unfortunately, it's also esca- escalated the cost of living and it's created a threat of recession in most economies. And so we all just need to rally around. As Matthew was alluding to, we as uh, an industry have the power to start to make that change because we're kind of at the start of the race. We can start to make the changes there in terms of how we design, you know, in terms of holding clients and, and investors accountable and driving opportunities for net zero design options that just show up at the start of the design process. And um, there are opportunities for us to collaborate closer. And I could see that at COP27, there were lots and lots of um, great stakeholders within our industry um, present. So you had the World Green Building Council, you had the AIA, you had ASHRAE on board, RIBA, um, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, lots and lots of stakeholders talking about it. But the other thing that I noticed is there was a lot of push in terms of those conversations to move from just target setting to actually taking action. Um, so pushing action-oriented agendas. I think Victoria Boris, who was on a previous podcast. Um, She was within an implementation lab and looking at local solutions to how nations can contribute to meeting the net zero targets. Uh, Just driving collaboration across built environment disciplines is crucial, right? We can't be isolated or working in silos. The architects need to be talking to the landscape architects, to the engineers to the contractors. Um, And I think that connected approach is what is going to help us to make significant progress in just driving it ourselves if the public sector is not quite there yet. Brilliant. Sumale, thank you very much. We'll, We'll come back to you at the end as well. Emma, let's come to you next. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Emma Nicholson. I work for Pick Everard as a Principal Sustainability Project Manager. Um, I'm also Chartered Environmentalist, and I'm a founder of Women in Sustainable Construction and Property uh, and also um, fellow of the Institute of Environmental Management and Ass- Assessment. Excellent. Well, welcome to the podcast. So same question to you as everybody else. What's your overall opinion of the outcomes of COP27 for the built environment? Uh, I will reiterate, I think it's been very mixed. I was just looking at a, a, a news headline today, which stated uh, leaders back a climate deal for developed countries to pay compensation for their carbon emissions. But the planet is on uh, life support. I mean, really, this should have been front headline news, but uh, it wasn't, uh, which was interesting. And I think what I'm astounded about is that globally, we can react very quickly to deal with the global COVID-19 pandemic and find solutions for vaccinations. Yet we can't seem to respond in the same way to a planet which I think is sick. A more positive outcome has been negotiated funds to compensate less wealthy countries suffering from rising temperatures. But on the other hand, a less positive outcome has been the phasing down of all uh, fossil solutions and the outcome of that. Some countries uh, have objected to this agreement as fossil fuels such as oil or coal are tied up with uh, economies. And and to be honest, Steve, I mean, I think now we need to really prioritise the built environment as an urgent and critical climate solution, as buildings are, they are responsible for almost 40% of all global energy emissions and 50% of all extracted materials. And sustainability and net zero needs to be at the top of all construction board and project agendas. So, I mean, we're experiencing climate emergency and organisations need to address their net zero strategies. And it's why uh, we as a business have recently committed to becoming net zero by the end of this year as part of Pick Everard's uh, latest business strategy. I think it's astonishing that globally we've got 100 billion tonnes of waste, which is caused by construction 
with around 35% of that sent, uh, sent to landfills. So we really do need um, to work towards a, a circular economy whereby waste and materials are recycled and, and reused. I mean, there have been, you know, there have been some highlights uh, with regards to uh, COP27. And um, one of those was a campaign which was launched called Roof Over Our Heads, addressing lack of safe and decent housing in vulnerable communities. And as uh, Matthew's mentioned, uh, COP27 has shown that we have the solutions to create a better built environment. We really can no longer afford inefficient and high emitting buildings. And I think it's also encouraging to see that um, a number of construction companies have joined Race to Zero. That has doubled since COP26, with many contractors committed to cutting their emissions by 2030. And it's also encouraging encouraging that cities and local authorities are really driving transformational actions to reduce emission and pollution from the construction sector by 2030. Great. So I'm going to ask you the same uh, question, a bit of a a, a sort of an end of year report. How do you think the built environment entities and the industry as a whole have done since COP26 in taking forward those things that were proposed a year ago? Well, I think I think there's definitely been some um, some good uh, progress. Um, I mean, uh, since COP26, for example, the construction industry has already begun implementing whole life measurements, and these developments also highlight how the consideration of embodied carbon and life cycle assessments will be actually central to the construction sector. And there's also, uh, with regards to the circular economy and practices for wastage, I think there's real opportunity for innovation. And I think it's just really fantastic that uh, hundreds of companies, notably, I think companies operating in the built environment are now signing up to the race to zero, um, which was launched at COP26 by Climate uh, Champions. So that's really good news. And, and of course, there's a number of factors. There's uh, anything that comes in in terms of legislation and regulation, but also there's the desire for things to move forward. And certainly people seem very much wanting to move this forward from both a a moral standpoint, but also there's the business case as well. Absolutely. There's a huge business case for this. And uh, a lot more needs to be done in terms of investment into renewable technologies and moving away from fossil fuels and, and focusing on fossil free construction sites. And, and, you know, globally, we need to repair the loss of wildlife, ecosystems and deforestation and damage to our planet. Um, so the future of built environment projects really need to incorporate biodiversity, protection of habitats and also protection of green belts, I believe. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Stay with us and we'll uh, come back to you towards the end. Fanos, if I can bring you in next. Yes, thank you. Hi, everyone. So my name is Fanos. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of 2050 Materials. I have a background in ESG. I've worked with all kinds of investors, helping them to align portfolios to climate strategies. And at 2050 Materials, we're building software for architects on the ground to reduce embodied carbon emissions of buildings. Well, we're we're glad you're here and thank you very much for joining us. Now, of course, as everyone has said so far, so many different factors to COP27, some good, some bad. How was it for you? What are your key takeaways? My opinion is that it's a little bit divided. Clearly, the fund around loss and damage for less wealthy countries is an absolutely great outcome. And I guess the other positive aspect of COP is that there is strong intent to act on on climate actions. And I think that's a very nice aspect of what we've seen. However, in my opinion, what's lacking currently is not so much the intent and not so much the ambitions, but the actual on-the-ground proposals and policies that will really push industries and specifically the built environment industry into making concrete change. So for me, the disappointing part was that after what we saw last year at COP26, we were hoping to see some more concrete targets and proposals and even some uh, indications of those kind of policies into, into coming into play. And I guess we have not quite seen that. Do you think there's more that the industry could do? I mean, outside of anything that that the COP conference decides on, there are things that can be done in between that just by the industry. And and what what, what do you think that could be done there to actually move things on and maybe get ahead of those who are making the decisions uh, on on the world stage? Yeah, that's a really good question. And honestly, I guess my personal opinion is that industry can do a lot. What we see through our work is that 
the action is really happening on the industry level. There's a lot of companies uh, like Emma mentioned that are signing up to a net zero pathway. There is specifically in the built environment, a lot of clients that are already asking for concrete targets to be met on their projects. So I guess I am a, a, a very big optimist, primarily not because of the policymakers, but really because of the industry and because we see a lot of change happening, even though the the policy might not be up to speed or where we think it should be. So in my opinion, there's a lot of uh, industry groups and target setting that is happening exclusively from the commercial side of the sector without the involvement of policy. So I'm very optimistic on that. And the same question I've asked to everybody else so far, uh, looking back at COP26, how do you feel progress has been made in that year since? I do think a lot of progress has happened on, on uh, the side of the industry. So we've seen a lot of reports being published around concrete targets and benchmarks that need to be met. And these are all science-based, which is uh, amazing. It's exactly what we expect to see also from policymakers. When it comes to the these kind of policies or these kind of benchmarks feeding into the policies, I think we've seen a lag of what was expected, but the intent and the ambitions that were set during COP26 really are starting to reflect into, into day-to-day business in the work that we do. Excellent. Okay, well, stay with us. Last but certainly not least, Amrita, welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, Steve, uh, and thank you for having me here. Uh, my name is Amrita Dasgupta Shekhar. I am an architect and an environmental engineer by background and uh, an associate at Green Gauge Environmental Services, which is a sustainability consultancy. And uh, I focus on uh, uh, leading on their energy and carbon services. Uh, in terms of just a little bit of a background, I have also um, I also sit on the Net Zero Carbon Building Standards Group, uh, which is a industry collaboration at the moment within the UK, uh, looking to build the new Net Zero Carbon Standards. And I also uh, sit on the British Property Federation's uh, Sustainability Committee. We're glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, we're here to talk about COP27, how was it for you? It's been great to see the traction building around issues relating to the built environment. And uh, with COP26, we really saw that instrumental move in terms of built environment, getting the recognition that it needs, especially because it it impacts such a large portion of the emissions within the sectors. And uh, it's been great to see that uh, traction building this year as well. Uh, just a number of initiatives and progress reports that were launched to galvanize the built environment industry towards collective action was really phenomenal. And I personally think that there is a lot of importance of these kind of publications and reports coming to the surface because they really start consistently showing how we are doing and where we need to focus. I'm quite optimistic that the loss and damage funding will do a bit of the same for the entire climate risk agenda as what the entire conversation around net zero has been for the building industry. But what I'd really like to see is these knit back into more than just political commitments and there being more of an opportunity to linking uh, the entire piece around just transition uh, to private sector net zero transition funds and channeling more finance into mitigation and adaptation and bringing to surface some of the issues that for the longest period of time have not been associated with climate risk. I mean, one of the most common things that we come across is that we don't necessarily yet see people talking about pandemics in the context of climate risk. And I think these kind of reports, this kind of work is almost necessary to start those conversations and get more of a recognition around climate risk. Uh, I think on the other side of the coin, I I suppose I'm also a bit disappointed in terms of the fact that more couldn't be done around the collective commitment towards limiting emissions below 1.5 degrees. And also, um, as others have very, very rightly pointed out, in terms of phasing out of fossil fossil fuels, uh, I, I love the way that uh, Emma and Sumela set out how we need to recognize that the uh, that the world is sick and we need to do more. And I, I, I think there is there can sometimes be 
a thinking that we need to wait to see how all of this will emerge rather than take action today. And I think that is the thinking that we need to move away from. And I definitely think that there is a, a massive missed opportunity in terms of COP uh, when looking at the private sector and, uh, and a risk of falling into a carbon tunnel vision, not considering the wider impacts and opportunities. So I think one of the points that I wanted to highlight is that, yes, we are seeing a lot of the emissions creeping back to pre-COVID uh, times, but in some ways this was to be expected. Uh, there's a project that I mentioned, the Real Estate Environmental Benchmarks. So uh, this is a project that we run uh, where there are 55 major real estate companies that submit assets for us to benchmark and look at industry trends. And these are companies that um, represent more than £45 billion worth of assets under management. And this is something that we are seeing with the results this year from that as well, especially with... Uh, if you think back during COVID, uh, a lot of the construction projects stalled and stopped, buildings were empty, and all of this had an impact on the emission curve. But in the UK, most developments are back to business as usual. And we're also slowly beginning to see that with the building occupancy as well. And it is to be expected that uh, we will see these emissions uh, creeping back up. To be fair, a lot of the real estate companies, investment management firms and local authorities have started making commitments or already have made commitments, as we've seen. But the true value and impact of these commitments will only begin to be realized within three to five years time, because right now these are more strategies rather than implementation. On the positive side, we are also at the minute within the UK seeing some really radical collaboration. That was a theme that was coming out of COP26. Uh, that radical collaboration was what we needed to really start resolving some of the front-end issues that companies are facing to try and really materialize net zero. And we've seen some fantastic collaboration uh, in terms of the net zero carbon, uh, net zero carbon building standards, which is going to really provide that consistency standardization uh, to the entire agenda. We've, there's uh, also the Better Buildings Partnerships Owner Occupier Forum, where um, we've seen some fantastic action with both of these communities coming together to see how they can work together to realize some of those reductions. Uh, similarly, there is the Net Zero Transition Plan frame Framework, and there are just a number of those that have emerged uh, really showcasing that radical collaboration piece. And I, I think one of the fundamental changes that I think most of us working within the sector uh, have really seen is that sustainability is really emerging from being a bolt-on to really being integrated into projects, into conversations, into uh, corporate strategies, which is just so refreshing to see. Does anybody have any questions for another member of the panel? Yes, Emma. Um, yeah, so one of the questions I have is is that whilst funding has been agreed for adaptation to also support less developed countries, uh, it's concerning about any potential funding gaps and the magnitude of funding required. So I suppose my question is to Matthew but in terms of what his thoughts are on that, if that's okay. Well, that, that's a big question. Um, I think in, in relation, maybe bringing it back to the, the built environment side of things, I think what's going to be really crucial, maybe looking at private sector first, is obviously companies taking responsibility for the emissions that they are responsible for, whether that's their own operations or beyond that from uh, emissions related to that their business activities. And, and I think one of the really exciting sort of developments that we're starting to see recently over the last couple of years, and I, I really hope that this starts to expand, is big players implementing a, a carbon price to their projects and their developments. I think this is crucial. You know, we need to, uh, as I'm sure the rest of the panel is fully aware, um, to move beyond just looking at the financial cost of, of our actions in relation to the built environment and construction and start looking at, at, at the environmental cost and, and doing that by highlighting the carbon cost of, of all of those actions. And so by setting a carbon price, attaching a financial value to the the carbon emissions that they are incurring they are often then putting this money into a, into a transition fund 
And then this transition fund can in turn be used to deliver on, on, on further decarbonization efforts. So maybe this developer who has, who has developed a, a whole new area can then go into a, a local area and through the transition fund pay for uh, the, the retrofit of a, of a school or, or social housing, um, something like that, that, that brings about multiple co-benefits, not just in terms of emissions reduction, but um, social and, and health and well-being co-benefits by making those buildings uh, better places to, to work, live and play. I think more broadly, um, in terms of wider funding, we need to see governments of all levels, like I said, whether it's local all the way through to national, step up in terms of uh, identifying and setting aside funds to implement the actions that we're talking about. Um, it means widespread uh, retrofitting programs for existing buildings, making them as energy efficient as possible so that we're not wasting precious energy that, that's already had emissions uh, occurred through its generation. Um, and it also means ensuring that they are actively setting the ground so that we don't continue um, to produce uh, inefficient fossil fuel powered buildings moving forwards. And I think that applies to an awful lot of actions um, in terms of where that funding is going to come. We're going to have to be more inventive through uh, the way that we spend money, but also, I guess, in the way that we, we generate money in terms of whether that's through um, more progressive taxing. The recent example is obviously uh, from a UK perspective and indeed globally, uh, windfall tax on, on energy um, energy suppliers in, in relation to increased prices. We need more inventive um, mechanisms like that in order to create the funds to then implement the actions that we all know are available to us today. Thank you, Matthew. Samele, let me bring you in. Have you got a question for another one of the panellists, please? Uh, this might be for anyone. Anyone could answer this question. I'm, I'm you know, really excited to hear things like, you know, the concrete zero, steel zero. It's like multi-layered initiatives um, across board. And it means that our impact is spread out and potentially we'll only start to see the progress when those things like come together. They're consolidated. Is there the opportunity or does it exist at this point for some sort of common dashboard, common metrics by which we're all measuring the impact that we're having? across the built environment? And then is there a dashboard that nations are using to track, you know, the progress? Because it's one thing to say, right, we're going to do this, but how do we actually measure? Because whatever is not measured potentially doesn't get changed. Um, so does it does that exist? And is there any benefit to, you know, pulling together the varied initiatives on a local level, national level, regional level? It doesn't matter. It's just how do we see the impact across board in each of our different disciplines? Who wants to answer that one? Any volunteers? I think, unfortunately, the short answer is is no in, in the immediate term. But there is definitely a lot of work going on um, within that space. And I know that World GBC is, is uh, trying to be involved in as much as we can. Uh, I, I would say I think the clearest answer is going to be the umbrella of the race to zero. Um, a lot of the the initiatives that I've mentioned and the, that was mentioned just there in the question um, feed into the overarching Race to Zero campaign. So that could be the sort of home or, or the hub moving forwards where um, that kind of uh, data collection and, and, and benchmarking and target setting um, can be achieved. But I would also say from, from my own personal experience that um, all of those initiatives will be trying to do that at some scale um, uh, in the meantime. So uh, from World GBC's perspective, through our net zero carbon buildings commitment, um, we complete annual reporting from participants, whether they're uh, private businesses, or cities or, or, or states and regions. Um, and moving forwards, as, as that data becomes clearer, we're going to try and be drawing out some, some uh, you know, sort of globally applicable, but also drilled down into international level or regional level uh, benchmarks and targets that can be used. I know that the the, the Concrete Zero initiative and will be doing the same in terms of the uh, benchmark thresholds that they say, set for um, the emissions in, um, the emissions associated with, um, you know, what, what they are classing as a, an acceptable or sustainable uh, concrete mix. Um, and beyond that, I, I, you know, all, all of these initiatives will be doing that. But absolutely, the, 
the the thought is there that eventually the more that we collaborate and the more that we we share this moving forwards that we'll be able to get um, more effective outcomes from that. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Uh, Amrita, have you got a question for anyone on the panel, please? Yes, um, I think I have a question for Fanos. Yes, we've seen incredible amounts of commitments coming through uh, from the real estate sector uh, in terms of those uh, net zero commitments, but also in terms of the funds and the investments that they are channeling towards climate risk. Have you seen any real sources of innovation coming through in terms of how uh, these companies are looking to overcome some of those uh, issues around really hard to abate uh, carbon emissions? Okay, so when it comes to hard to abate sectors like concrete and steel, for example, where clearly there's a lot of innovation happening, I think what we see from a, from an asset owner's perspective is that the best practices there focus not just on the one two at least at least on the embodied carbon perspective, not just on the one two materials that are kind of the the popular ones when we're discussing about embodied carbon. What has happened in the last uh, year, I would say, is that there has been a lot of research around how different activities in the construction sector, not just new buildings, but also, for example, retrofitting or commercial fit-outs, contributes to emissions. And it turns out that those, uh, those kind of activities have a huge impact in terms of emission generation. And thankfully, they're much easier to solve because you can promote circular principles and choose lower carbon materials, for example. So I would say that uh, my, my summarized answer would be that, yes, we still have certain issues when it comes to uh, structural materials of buildings that need to be reduced in emissions simply because some materials are high emitting by, by nature or by, their, by design of how they are manufactured. However, a lot of the innovation that we're seeing from the asset owner's perspective is really diving into the details, even in projects where we're doing commercial fit-outs, where, as I mentioned earlier, it's very high emissions and we just have not considered them up to now as much, simply because we have not considered how frequently they happen. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Matthew, have you got a question for anyone on the panel, please? Uh, I've been struggling to think of one, but I, I guess I was sort of going to do one of, um, if you had one one wish to happen between now and, and COP28, what, what would it be? Good question. Emma, do you want to pick up on that one first? I just, I just think in terms of, um, I mean, we say uh, that we're going to, we're working towards net zero by 2050. I'd, I just want, would like to see companies not have any inertia with regards to that and just to really realize that there is urgency so you know climate emergencies is happening now it's it's you know not to sort of focus on this like 10 years later i think all organizations now need to put sustainability at the very top of agendas train up uh, your employees and in, in terms of understanding uh, what net zero is all about and, and the transition and also i think we need a great green upskilling of um, uh, young people coming into the built environment. Uh, we have potentially got a skill shortage. We have potentially got a shortage with regards to suppliers as well, particularly with regards to possibly renewable technologies and, and, and finding solutions to uh, fossil fuels. So that's my view with regards to that. Thanks. Amrita? I think there are, there, there are two points that I would like to mention. One was, uh, as Emma highlighted, the skills gap which is absolutely phenomenal uh, and for the climate transition to be realized uh, sustainability needs to be embedded into skills and services to such a massive extent i think the only indicator of success can be the time when sustainability consultants are no longer required and the push towards a net zero global econ economy will require an unprecedented shift in how companies produce and deliver goods and services particularly in sectors that are both carbon and labor intensive. And it will have to be embedded into everything we do, from extraction and manufacturing to valuation, investment, leasing. At the moment, a lot of this conversation is still sitting within with the, uh, uh, the architects, the developers, the engineers, and this is really need, going to need to percolate into some of the other strands. And there was a very, very interesting piece of um, 
work that's been done by a number of organizations uh, and uh, PwC, ACOM, they've all been talking about this, which is that historically we have always evaluated projects on the basis of three KPIs, time, cost, and resource. But what really needs to happen is this shift from this to talking more about time, cost, resource, and climate impact. The climate impact becoming the fourth pillar that we evaluate absolutely everything against. And then one of the things that I've often wondered in terms of uh, COP is that if we can do more in terms of the private sector and the corporates, quite like what we do with countries uh, in the blue zone, it would be really good to see if we can really galvanize those commitments uh, around the green zone bring these companies together, try and get them to commit to targets that can then eventually contribute uh, contribute to the NDCs, but then also utilize some of this fantastic information that's coming out through TCFD, uh, uh, SFDR, some of the really great uh, information coming out of real estate reporting. Uh, if we can really start using some of this information to then continuously track, monitor, progress from the private sector in terms of this overall overall reduction. Excellent. Okay. And Matthew, you asked the question, but you should also get a chance to answer it as well. Excellent. Thanks, Steve. I think, um, well, echo a lot of what uh, the other panelists said, but I'd also say, um, you know, within the twelve next 12 months, I'd like to see another doubling of of participants in in the race to zero and and the other partner initiatives that that feed into that um and and I'd really like to to see this momentum continue and and hopefully at cop 28 we can we can stand there with some big national scale sort of national government scale uh, announcements on on tackling emissions from the built environment sector that all of this fantastic action that we've discussed from the private sector um, has has sort of laid the groundwork for and then can ultimately build on top of as well. Great answers to those questions. Thank you for that. Now, is there anything else we need to talk about? Amrita? If people have the time to run through just uh, the gaps that they are seeing, uh, but also what they think, looking ahead, what is the next year, what are the biggest changes that they're ant- uh, anticipating? And I mean, if it helps, I can probably get started off on some of these. I think tackling the last question in terms of looking ahead at the coming year, where are the most important challenges? Uh, One of the biggest shifts that we are going to see is that at the moment with the entire net zero debate, uh, we have a lot of fragmentation within the industry in terms of the definitions, um, definitions around net zero. How do you quantify, verify this? And I think we're going to see a lot of standardization in terms of uh, uh, these being measurable, verifiable, easy to communicate, and most importantly, not just another greenwash. Uh, We're also going to see more collaboration, more scrutiny from investors and occupiers in terms of the projects, but also uh, the properties that they are investing in or leasing. And it will really be interesting to see how... um, some uh, some of these net zero commitments materialize in action, especially as definitions start getting formalized, and uh, some of those near term targets and uh, targets and uh, claims are being uh, validated through the various mechanisms. We will also see quite a lot in terms of uh, the focus on biodiversity and natural capital, and this is something that we have started seeing in Green Gauge as well both in terms of the impact uh, that our uh, our services and uh, our business has on natural capital, but also in terms of the opportunities that exist in terms of reducing those emissions, but looking at the wider benefits uh, within the built environment. Well, I would just add that there's, there's likely going to uh, be a need for more data-driven decision-making during design, construction, and operation. Um, We're seeing a proliferation of digital twins to help connect pre-construction to post-construction. And so I think that's going to that's going to be uh, a field that kicks off and starts to provide additional benefits to this 
you know, the cause that everyone is fighting towards. I'd say also forecasting and predictive modeling, just the sharpening of those things where technology can be leveraged to forecast um, how a building might perform, how it might impact uh, the climate, um, but also just predicting how the, the future climate change uh, can can backward impact what we're designing and building today. Uh, and to kind of clarify that, it's like using future climate files, um, thinking about um, rainfall levels, water levels across the world. How will that change what we're designing today? Because we can't quite use what we, we're seeing today uh, as a baseline to design for the future. We kind of have to project ahead to say things are changing constantly um, uh, and climate change is becoming even more evident to on, in everyone's day-to-day lives. I, for example, live in London and there were wildfires like right outside my house, which I never experienced before. And so everyone is becoming um, more sensitized to the reality of this. So we all have to start thinking uh, several steps ahead as we're designing today to make sure that we're not kind of setting ourselves up for um, the gap being closed with climate change much sooner than we we expected, and, and lastly, I would just add that con- connect a connected construction workflow is going to be much more crucial. So there are too many silos between all the different stakeholders that bring a building to uh, or bring the built environment to life, and um, you know, like landscape architects are going to be crucial in terms of adaptation and mitigation uh, of, of climate change. I think I saw a project in Indonesia where they created a park in the center of, of the city and they're creating canals that are, are ma- trying to manage um, uh, flood flooding. And so I think that um, connecting landscape architects to architects to construction engineers and um, MEP engineers and just trying to really tighten um, how we're working to to make sure that we're not missing out on on um, on, on the positive benefits of of collaboration, I think, will be crucial going forward. Um, I guess a, cu- a quick few points um, in terms of the gaps. Completely agree with what everyone said. Um, just reiterating the the data point. Um, we need to be collecting data at, at every opportunity that can ultimately be used to. Um, exactly like we've said, inform future decisions uh, and set relevant uh, targets and, and benchmarks for for future construction. Uh, and also um, linking back to sort of the wider conversations at this year's COP, uh, one of the gaps moving forwards is, is finance. So, you know, mobilizing the, the necessary finance globally, not not just in in places like the UK, but but globally so that we can um, implement the solutions that, as I've said a few times, that we know are, are, are available already today. Um, we know how to build sustainable buildings that are, um, you know, healthier, um, energy efficient, powered by renewables, more resilient to the ongoing effects of the climate crisis. But we also, in order to realize those, um, we need to mobilize um, the proper financial tools to, to be able to um, to be able to deliver them. And I think in terms of the, the challenges over the next year, I think we've touched on quite a few of them, but um, it, it's really reinforcing the, the work of um, the organizations who are involved in, in, in um, pushing this forward, whether it be through um, more ambitious uh, and aggressive regulations and policies from government, but also more ambitious uh, and accelerated action from the private sector to really show that, show what is possible today and, and feed into uh, that ambition loop so that others can follow in their footsteps. So we've had a lot of discussion. Uh, thank you, everybody. Um, I'm going to come to you, Matthew, just for kind of a, a final thought, if you like, about everything that we've talked about, about COP27. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. And, and thank you to all the other panellists. It's, it's been a fantastic um, privilege to be involved in this conversation today. I think just to wrap up, I'd like to quickly uh, thank and congratulate all of my colleagues who are on the ground uh, at Sharm el-Sheikh for, for delivering such an impressive program of events and really spearheading the cause in terms of highlighting the massive opportunity that the built environment presents in terms of tackling the time at climate crisis. And also a thank you to all of World GBC's partners, uh, the Green Building Council Network and their members for their continued efforts to accelerate the transition to a net zero, healthy and resilient built environment. 
And finally, just to end on a, on a call to action to your listeners, if you're a member of a business, uh, World GBC encourages you to join the Race to Zero through one of their partner initiatives like Science-Based Targets, Amazon's The Climate Pledge or the SME Climate Hub. And then in turn, um, sign up to World GBC's Net Zero Carbon Buildings commitment to take accelerated action by 2030 to decarbonize our built environment. And finally, uh, if you've enjoyed listening and you want to find out more, please go to the World GBC website and also the Building to COP Coalition website for more content on what we've been discussing. And I think we'll be releasing a a more in-depth assessment of the COP process shortly so you can read up and, and get involved moving forwards. Matthew and all our guests, thank you so much for being on this uh, extended episode of Constructive Voices. It's been a brilliant conversation. As we always say, uh, the conversation is building and it certainly has been since COP27. So thank you so much for joining us. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website where there's lots more information too. That's constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Mm